Welcome to the Go-To-Market Mindset with Michael Gordon, where we talk about all things related to sales, business development, and personal growth. If it's about high performance, you want to take a deep dive into that. And to do that, we'll be talking with some of the sharpest minds in all the land. But don't get too comfortable because we're going to be getting you out of your comfort zone. The Go-To Market Mindset is brought to you by Sandler Training in Calabasas and me, Michael Gordon. We work with growth-minded companies that know sales is never about price and believe that salespeople have rights. For more information, visit gordon.sandler.com. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Go-To-Market Mindset. I'm here with Jason Ye, founder of Adam Ventures and former venture capitalist and tech founder. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. Let's get started. Jason, you have a really interesting background like I said earlier, I know that you were both a founder, a VC, and looking at your website, I heard I found some really interesting things. You had mentioned that early in your career that you had run into some stumbling blocks like imposter syndrome and avoiding failure at all costs. And the one thing I find working with business owners and companies is that's a lot more common than you might think. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, how you came across it. And more importantly, what are some of the things that you did to kind of overcome those challenges early on? I do think that it's not all that uncommon to see people who have, who have achieved certain amounts of success to behind closed doors, talk about things like imposter syndrome and the things that I mentioned on my website. And then specifically for me, I grew up as an Asian American kid that I use these words on my <laughs> website, but certainly pushed me through a lot of amazing things and taught me the value of hard work and, and achievement. But I think if I were to describe where I developed those things, it was, it was really a focus around pursuing certain things because of what other people expected of me. Either, you know, I think that certainly started with my parents who had very high expectations of me, the best grades, you know, the best schools, et cetera. Very soon after I you know, as an independent adult, that kind of pursuit of, of validation from, from external sources, I think never went away. And so I went from uh, scoring well on tests because I know my, knew my parents wanted to see that to, you know, like trying to go to the best school because, I, you know, my parents wanted to see that to then really just not really knowing why I was doing it, but I was going after, you know, the best jobs from a external point of view, right? the best logos and, you know, what I called like accumulating logos, whether that's graduate school or a fancy venture capital firm and, and never really doing things for, for me and like the things that I, I thought I was good at or I wanted to do. And I, and I think when you start, when you pursue goals for other people's goals is, is where you'll kind of never be, um, I think you'll never be satisfied with where you are and you'll always have this feeling like, oh, like, do I need to be doing more? Am I good enough for where I am? Um, and I guess transitioning to like, you know, how I got past that, um, I think it was, it was a lot of reflection off of um, failures and mistakes and, you know, why I got to where I was and then, um you know, shifting a focus around what I really enjoyed and the things that I wanted for myself. And actually, right before we got on this call, we were talking about something else, but um, focusing on those things has turned into way more professional success 
um, ironically, than when I was so focused on what professional success meant. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I was actually just reflecting on our conversation before we started recording that, you know, where you said following your passion is, you know, the quickest way to success. And, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think if we tend to follow the things that other people want us to do, we get our validation from other people instead of looking internally. And I think that can create a lot of uh, internal, internal struggles. So, you know, I appreciate that. And then, you know, you talked about avoiding failure at all costs. Is that kind of the same vein or is that a kind of a different piece of head trash as we call it? Uh, no, I think it, they're all very intertwined and certainly, certainly related. Yeah. I think in the household I was brought up in, you know, it's a, it's a stereotype, but like not straight A's and anything less than an A was deemed a failure. And like that, that reaction or that, um, that reaction from people that I respected, parents, people that I looked up to, people that raised me kind of colored my view on, on failure for the future. And so, you know, that fear of failure, I think has held me back tremendously. Now where I am, I know that when I push myself beyond my comfort zone and put failure much in a much more like front and center uh, space in my mind and in what's in front of me, like it's only those situations where I've been able to really like improve and become better in all, in all phases of my life. And um, if I, I got to where I was like on paper, which is, I think a lot of people would respect by doing the safe thing and, you know, like playing, playing in between the lines, doing things I knew that I, that I, you know, wouldn't really fail at. All that got me were a bunch of logos and like sort of a lot of professional unhappiness. Yeah. But the moment I started putting myself out of my comfort zone where failure was like a real reality is, is when I really started making huge strides and trying out new things and things that I've really, really enjoyed and never would have done before um, had I not you know, done things that I certainly could have and did fail at. That's amazing. So it sounds like you're saying you have to be willing to fail to grow. Yeah. You know, I think failure probably has a branding problem. <laughs> I think that about a lot of different things. They're just things that have been so tightly coupled with negativity and in most people's minds. Honestly, when you think about failure more as like a learning opportunity or like exposure and a chance to learn about the other side of something, not as like a huge only negative thing like failure is, is when things become a little bit more accessible to you. So yeah, I think as you would describe failure certainly is a door toward to new things, but if it were branded differently, like experience, you know, like um, I would say, yeah, experience is the gateway to new and better things. I would, I would agree with that a hundred percent. So let me ask you from a, from an attitudinal perspective, what advice can you give founders that are looking to grow through venture capital? Wow. That's a <laughs> loaded question with a lot of different paths to go down. I mean, <clears throat> I think like the simplest piece of advice that I give a lot of founders is to just make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. Like if you're even thinking about starting a company, you have so many opportunities in front of you. And so spending your life building a business that you shouldn't be building is probably not the best use of your time. And so make sure that you're interested in what you're doing and make sure that venture capital and, and, 
the headlines behind venture capital are not the reason you're doing it. Because if you're doing it because you think that there's a possibility for a billion dollar exit, or because you want to raise $50 million, or you want to raise from Greylock or Sequoia or whatever, like those are all the wrong reasons. And likely if you start with that first, as opposed to like first principles around the core reason why you're doing a business, you're likely to not succeed. I think in my experience, both observing and in my own life, focusing on things that I'm passionate about, that I have real differentiated insight around or, or that I'm experienced in, like I have a deep experience set in. Those are the reasons to be deciding to start a company and finding De- developing and putting out into market solutions to actual problems. Those are the reasons that you should start a company. If you start there, then the next things will just follow along behind that, whether or not you need more capital, or if you can grow, grow your business off of revenue, that will reveal itself. If you find out that there's a huge market opportunity that requires upfront investment before you get to revenue, that will reveal itself as long as you focus on the right things to start. Um, and venture capital isn't for everyone. Um, so I'd rather see people build great businesses that they want to be in and then figure out if scaling through venture capital is, is the right path after that. Got it. Got it. So it sounds like having, and I'll quote what somebody said about you on LinkedIn, your belief and conviction, have those two first and everything else kind of falls into play behind that. I think so. Okay. Awesome. So I want to jump to another topic again. One of the things I see in your posts on LinkedIn is, you know, typically venture capital has, at least in my mind, has been a very one-sided business where it's venture capital folks are having, you know, tons of founders come pitch to them and it's one-sided. And, you know, I think in sales, it, it tends to be that way where the buyer is in charge, but I haven't really heard anyone else say kind of flip the script. I think your words were control your, control your narrative, control your process which is really interesting. How can founders that are looking to get investment control that narrative and control their process? I think it, it you know, it goes back to kind of a little bit of what, what I said, which was know why you're doing the business. And so if you know why you're doing your business, like your narrative will come out of that. And then when I, when I talk about controlling the narrative and controlling the process, um, it's a reference to my belief in, in, in what venture capital and startup fundraising um, the, the rules of engagement, like what those rules of engagement are. So like I have a belief that early stage investing has very little to do with numbers, especially the earlier that you go. And, and you've probably heard the cliche or the, um, that you know, you're betting on the, the, the jockey, not the horse. It's, it's very true. And even as companies release products and start generating revenue and generating months of revenue and even generating the first year of revenue. I'm fond of saying like those numbers are just elements of the story and the narrative that you're telling because it's such early data. Like no one can look at a year of revenue and say with certainty, I'm going to extrapolate that Michael's Sandler method training business is going to be a billion dollar business. You know, all it is is telling me a story. And so once you realize that, once you realize that venture capitalists are buying a story and deciding whether or not they believe in, then you will realize how important it is for you to control the narrative, for you to make sure the messaging that you're sending someone is all aligned with what you believe is the opportunity. The moment you 
kind of allow yourself to be buffeted by the processes of venture capitalists will run or people's feedback to you is when you start to release control of the very thing that you need somebody to buy or to invest in, which is your narrative. Interesting. That's really insightful and a new a new way to look at things for me. So when you mentioned you invest early on in the the jockey, not the horse, what is what does that jockey look like? I think jockeys come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> and and, and then I, I didn't mean that literally. Just no, yeah, no, I, but, but no, but um, they 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 have all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and I do think, to be candid, different investors look at look for different things. But at a high level, if I were to describe it, it's, you know, you're looking to invest in the person that, for whatever reason, you believe is going to knock down walls in order to make sure this business is successful. And super early on, that's really important because, like I said, you're not investing in a sure thing. And so a founder needs to have a conviction and a passion and an insight that will allow them to be comfortable banging their head against a wall 20 times until the wall finally starts to crumble. Because like, it is a really difficult path, especially early on trying to find product market fit. Someone might have an initial product that they're showing you, but like they really haven't shown that the market wants it yet. And if they haven't shown that the market wants it yet, that means that that jockey will need to take every piece of energy they have and insight into figuring out what the version of the product that will actually work is. And that process is very difficult. And so you just want to make sure that you're investing in a, in a founder, in a jockey that learns quickly, has insight, has expertise, works well with others, can ask people for help, like will do whatever it takes in order to get the company um, to where it needs to be. It's hard for me to distill that in like a small soundbite around what the perfect, uh, you know, founder or jockey is, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's all the things that an investor has seen be successful in the past and more. Makes perfect sense. So let me ask, I know we're, you know, kind of in an era where founders and companies are getting tons of money pre-revenue, you know, even reaching unicorn status before they even have a revenue model. What, you know, how important is having some sort of revenue model for you or how important is it in general that companies are at least able to say, this is how we tend to intend to go to market. This is how we're going to, you know, grow our business, grow our client base. You know, I'm, I'm going to kind of answer very similarly for, for the other questions. Everything is part of a story. Everything is part of your narrative and your ability to answer what your, your business model is, your revenue model is, is a component of that story. I think the mistake that a lot of founders make around like what is important, what's not important is that they'll read a blog post or they'll see Airbnb's series A deck and they'll just be like, can I replace Airbnb's problem slide with my slide? And then Airbnb's revenue model with my model. If I check off all the boxes, then I'm going to be able to go raise money because I had the things that they had. When the fact of the matter is, I don't believe that's true. I think you're you're trying to tell a really compelling story. And there is a really compelling story out there with a, with a firecracker founder with incredible experience that goes, here's the problem that I saw living in this industry for 10 years and doing market development for the last year, my initial product or whatever. I know that this market is untapped and this problem is unsolved. I'm going to go after this. Um, 
I'm not exactly sure what my business model is. I think there's some opportunities in five different places, but I don't really know. Like there is a story out there with the right founder where that will wait, that will raise money. But for other founders and for other opportunities and for other, other narratives, a much more developed out um, viewpoint on what the revenue model is might be important. So, you know, it's a long way of saying it depends. I would say in all points, I'd, I'd want my founders who are, are raising money to be able to thoughtfully talk about almost any topic around their business and, and where they might go with the revenue model. You know, yeah, for different stories, different businesses, different founders, um, having that more fleshed out than others is, is sometimes more important, sometimes less important. Got it. Got it. That, and that makes sense. So let me ask you another question. This is something I've heard come up a lot lately. How does a team, a company know when it's time to switch from product-led growth to when it's actually time to have a sales force or, or a group of people that are actively looking to move the product into yeah. another organization or boss or companies? Yeah, I'll tell you a, a preamble that I'm, I'm fond of giving before I give any advice. I think in a lot of these situations, for any topic worth discussing, you're probably liable to find two equally credible people that will give very, very different pieces of advice or reactions. So this is, this is mine based on my own experiences. And in fact, probably around the time when we met for, and you'll know why. Um, I would say that you do not want to start bringing on go-to-market sales, external salespeople until you feel confident that you have product market fit. That's my experience set. Um, and you can define product market fit in a bunch of different ways. But if you believe that you as the founder are not able to make sales because you're not a great salesperson, you're kidding yourself. And, and um, feeling like you need to have a salesperson figure out product market fit for you is, is going to be a very challenging road. So in my opinion, a founder, I don't know if you're talking about founder-led growth or product-led growth, but I think a founder needs to be able to confidently close a couple sales or at least get to the finish line of a sale and feel like maybe they bumbled it because they don't know certain sales processes. But if they can't get a buyer or a customer articulating a problem that they're solving with whatever they're selling, they need to continue iterating around product and customer development before bringing on uh, external salespeople. But that's just me. Okay. Well, I, I'll tell you, that's a great answer because that <laughs> that one resonates with me perfectly. And I can think back on some early startups I was at where I was trying to figure out what the product market fit was as the first person, uh, the first sales hire in the company. So I think that's a great answer. And let me, I mean, let me ask, I guess, the second part of that question. How common do you think that is that founders aren't exactly sure of what their product market fit is, or I guess more specifically, they think it's one thing, but it's really something else. I think, unfortunately, it's uh, too common. It's it's very common, and and there are a lot of different reasons for that. I mean, a few that come to my to my head are are not being honest with themselves, um, the pressure of venture capital, the pressure of growth, external expectations, a lot of different things. But I think it happens a ton. Um, I think people want to convince themselves that they have product market fit, and then they want to skip steps and they want to go to the next thing. They want to grow faster and they want to be on you know, TechCrunch headlines and they want to raise more money. Yeah, I, I think it's super important to make sure you understand the customer problem, like making sure that there even is a customer problem. Like you might even be you know, uh, 
kidding yourself around that. And then once you have that, like making sure that your solution is the solution, is a 10x solution, is a solution that they'll choose over other people that they'll pay more money for. Like those are the things that like I really want to see founders get closer to and be more honest around before skipping steps and going to the next level. Got it. And is there a process or a series of questions that founders can ask themselves to really help define that? And I'll, and I'll give you an example, you know, in, in sales training, we, you know, we say to our clients, we, you know, everybody knows what they do. Not everybody knows what they sell. Meaning, you know, if you're a financial advisor, you know what you do, but you don't know what you, many times they don't know what they sell. They're really selling, you know, helping people sleep better at night, helping, you know, retire mm-hmm. at a, a reasonable age. Is there a, a, you know, a series of questions or a set of questions that founders can use to kind of answer that yeah, you know, I bet you there are experts out there that could help with the answer there more. Um, I'll give you one thing that I love seeing, although it's not applicable to everyone or every situation. I love seeing customers and users that will complain but continue using, complain but continue buying. Like, essentially, I love seeing people suffer through a bad experience in order to get to the solution that is shrouded in bad UX or underdeveloped products. I think companies like Apple and the the myth of like everyone being Steve Jobs and beautiful product has made certain processes to focus on a a beautiful design and hoping that a beautiful design will um, obfuscate the lack of product market fit, essentially. so not a, not a universally applicable thing, but like a good concept to think about in terms of one indication of product market fit. And then you mentioned 10, a 10 X product. How, you know, how often is it that you see in the mar- in the market, a company that really says, Hey, we have a 10 X product. That's so differentiated than everything else that's out there. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I think about 10 X problem product versus like, uh, you know, solving an un, yeah, a new putting a new product out there and solving a problem that has yet to find a solution. When, you know, when I say 10x problem product, I mean something like the new generation of like note taking apps. So like Notion and Rome, there are a ton of different ways that you could take notes today. Um, but someone, in order to get someone to really dump Evernote or Notepad, they need to have a solution that is 10x what they had before. Otherwise they're not going to go through the effort of changing their processes and their habits. So I think it happens a ton. I think there's so much innovation out there. So many brilliant people working on, on products out there that, that you, I mean, we're, we're lucky enough to be living in a time where I think 10 X products are released all the time. Awesome. Jason, a lot of great stuff. I, and again, thanks for coming on. Could you maybe put a bow on it and, and tell us what is, you know, and again, I know it's a broad question, but what if, if you're talking to a founder who's listening right now, early on, they've, they've got a product, they've got a little bit of revenue. What's the one piece of advice that you could give them to help them go to market faster, more effective and more profitably? This is good advice for like tackling any problem or building anything up. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Look for people that have done it before. Look for people smarter more experienced than you that have made every problem that you're trying to avoid and short circuit all that by finding them and asking for help, finding them and ask for advice. So 
find someone like a Michael Gordon and say, who knows way more about go to market than you do and ask them for advice. Try your hardest not to be shy and bashful about asking for advice. Um, because that's the only way you're going to go faster. Like I'm sure everyone listening is smart as a whip and, and able to learn fast, not as fast as asking an expert who can, who can guide you. So that would be my golden nugget piece of advice to put a bow on this conversation. All right. Well, sage advice. I was actually just rereading uh, Think and Grow Rich. And the thing that was what Napoleon Hill said, ask for help, find a mastermind group of people that are smarter than you. Well, Jason, thanks again for coming on. Really enjoyed the time here. How can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? And you know, my, my fault, give yourself a, a 30 second commercial, let the people know what you do <laughs> and how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I started a small business with a very specific goal in mind to, to play off of my deep experience set and just make fundraising as easy and as accessible uh, as accessible for as many founders as possible. And that's the stated goal of Adamant Ventures. We're not a venture capital firm. Um, we're a firm that uh, you know, we're just supporting founders through education, coaching, et cetera. We have a podcast as well. It's called Funded. It's on all major platforms. We just released our fourth episode today. Um, so you can find it at fundedpod.com or fundedpod on any of the social platforms. And uh, you can listen to that anywhere you listen to podcasts. I appreciate the time to, to plug those things. Very cool. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, good luck with, the, with your venture and great luck with the podcast as well. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thank Thanks for listening. I hope you got as much out of this as I did. To find out more about how we work with companies to help them grow sales more profitably and predictably, please check out gordon.sandler.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.